uh, before we started Westridge, I had a pastor, mentor, friend of mine tell me that one of the greatest blessings of planting a brand new church in a community uh, like this, where there were a lot of people who were out of church, was that from day one, there would be a focus on reaching and discipling people, that we would just be outward focused. And uh, he said, if you're not going to be outward focused, you're going to starve. So you just, you know, you're just going after people because you've come here to reach uh, those who just are lost without Christ. And so we also know studies show that church plants are the most effective evangelistic tool that we have here, you know, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And we've been in a series, a study on the book of Acts, and Acts is such a great testament to that fact that I just mentioned a moment ago. But that same pastor, mentor, friend of mine, in that same conversation told me, he said, listen, I'm going to tell you the greatest challenge that you are probably going to have as a pastor over the long run will be to keep the church outward focused. He said, because churches typically grow inward. He said, it's so easy to turn inward. It's natural for people to get lost, uh, to lose perspective, to, to get focused on themselves, to think that somehow or another this is all about us. When we, are, we are programmed by our old nature to look out for number one. It is part of just our DNA at birth. It's just part of our old nature. And so we've just made it our job over 22 years to stay outward focused, to, to stay focused on the one, the one who's out there, the one who's lost, the one who needs to hear about Jesus. And we've seen over 6,500 people come to faith in Jesus Christ right here in, in this building at East Paulding High School, at Rush Camp, at Surge Camp, down the street at Vaughn Elementary School. We've, over 22 years, 6,500 people. And now we've had a chance to plant over, praise God, right? We've had a chance to plant over 180 churches just in the United States. We, we were involved very strategically in church planting in downtown Atlanta and the city of Boston, the city of Detroit. We're working in Burkina Faso, Africa. We're working in Cuba. We're working in Nicaragua, in Scotland. We have a team in Scotland this morning. My mom's on that trip. Um, we've been working in Guatemala, in Spain. We've helped launch several nonprofits, um, things like Love Beyond Walls, Truth in Nature. We've so warehouse of hope we've supported for years and helped them and so many others that have been you know launched out of here or been supported from here we've actually sent eight missionary uh, individuals or couples out of Westridge into places all over the world like Turkey and Thailand and Spain and it's just been amazing and we've focused on from from day one on making disciples who who make disciples making disciples who see themselves as called to live out the mission of Jesus where they live work and play but even with all of that, it has been an enormous challenge to keep us focused outward on the great commission, on the lostness of our community, to, to just help all of us to never forget why we, why we started this church in the first place. Because here's the truth. Once a church turns inward, it's a really hard pattern to break. That's why there's so many churches all over the place. That's why there, there's so many just empty buildings because somewhere along the way somebody said, let's just focus on us. Let's just focus on, you know, the, our little group here, our family, whatever. And usually it takes a powerful force or a strong event to get that church refocused on where it needs to be. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts, believe it or not. Acts chapter 1, Jesus told a core group of 120 plus believers that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. He said, I'm going to give you my power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria. He said, I'm going to send you out to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come rushing into where they were. The Bible says like a mighty rushing wind. He feel, fills up this core group of believers with the Holy Spirit. And then the first church begins as a dynamic movement of God. 
And as we saw last week in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, the apostles are preaching the gospel with boldness. They're, they have courage in the, in the face of extreme persecutions and, and, and threats. And while that's going on, people are being healed. Demons are being cast out. Signs and wonders are, are increasing. And thousands and thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ in Jesus, in, in, in Jesus. And the church is expanding all over Jerusalem. Small groups are forming, they're serving one another, the believers are selling their possessions, they're taking care of each other. There is tremendous unity and buy-in towards the mission of Jesus. And then, in chapter 5, we see signs of trouble. A husband and wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, they, they sell some property and they bring the proceeds to the sale of the church. And however, um, both of them at separate times are greedy, they lie to the apostles and to the Holy Spirit about the sale of the land, which quite, quite honestly was completely unnecessary. They didn't even need to lie, but they both dropped dead on the ground. So just be, make sure you're very, very honest about your giving and your selling and, and all that, okay? I'm just going to just Acts 5. That's all I'm going to say. But in Acts chapter 6, the people, begin, the people in the church begin to complain. And, and the Greek-speaking believers begin to accuse the Hebrew-speaking believers of discriminating discriminating. Okay, I got this new tongue yesterday, and I'm just working. I'm trying to work it in right now, okay? They're discriminating against their widows with the distribution of food. And so the 12 apostles, they hold a meeting, and they select seven men who are respected godly men. And this is where the very first time in the Bible we see the word deacon. And some of you are like, oh, that's where that began. Oh, But anyways, they're respected. So here are the 12 apostles. They lay hands on these seven deacons. They commission them to serve the church and then the apostles say, listen, we can focus on what God's called us to do, which would be to, to teach God's word and to pray. The deacons will take care of the widows and the orphans and lead the day-to-day ministries of the church. And the people in the church will serve one another, share their faith with their friends and neighbors. And this is how God set it up. But the first church, the first church began to continue to show signs of some complacency. They, began to, they just began to grow inward. So what does God do? Shakes it up a little bit. Extreme persecution begins to rise up against the church. One of the seven deacons, Stephen, is, he's arrested on false charges. He's dragged outside the city gates and he's stoned to death. Now when that happened, persecution just against the church went to a whole nother level. And we get into Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us there's a man by the name of Saul who later becomes the apostle Paul. And he's going from house to house to house having believers arrested and then thrown into prison. And so persecution is sweeping all over the church in Jerusalem and it is forcing the early believers to scatter all over regions in Samaria and Judea. Verse 8, verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now where did Jesus command these first century believers to share the gospel in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He says, I want you to go to all over Judea and Samaria. And now God has allowed persecution because had he not done that, they'd still be in Jerusalem. But now they're out spreading the gospel in Judea and Samaria. First church wasn't going through a split. There wasn't a big scandal. There wasn't a power struggle going on with the apostles or the deacons. They, they, they just became comfortable. They, they started to grow inward. And so God allowed persecution so that these believers would refocus themselves and they would continue to share their faith all over the world so they would keep their focus outward. This past week, I've just, uh, as I do every year, I reflect over, you know, just the, not only the past year, but over the, the past however many years. And this year was, this year was pat, reflecting over 22 years of, of being in this community and all that God has done. And I've asked myself the question, do we still have an outward focus? 
Even with all that, that, that we've talked about this morning, all that you've seen, all the things that we've done in our community, you know, and talked about with church planting and global missions, do we still have a heart for that one lost neighbor? Do we still, still, are we still burdened for that one lost family member that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus to be their Savior? Are we still broken over that one lost friend who has a locker next to us? How about that one lost coworker that, who, who we've worked alongside for years and years and years, but, but they're still, they've, they've yet to put their faith and, and trust in Jesus? Before we ever moved in this building, um, and we moved in here in December 2005, and we opened the building up one evening, and hundreds of you came in here, and we had black markers, and there was nothing in here. There was no carpet. There was no tile. There used to be tile in here. And we just gave every one of you a black marker, and we said, we want you to write the name of, of, a, of a friend who needs Jesus. Several of you came up here on the stage and underneath the staging. There, right now, there are names of of lost family members, lost friends, lost neighbors. Underneath that carpet, there's just names. On the, before we ever painted those walls and put those tiles up over there, those sound uh, tiles, there's just names of people all over this building that we've just committed to pray for, every single one that, that needs Jesus Christ to be their Savior. If you go out in the atrium right now, there's a wall out there made up of pieces of logs, and, and there's, right there there's hundreds of names of people over the past few years who have decided to follow Jesus with their life. And it's been, it's been inspiring to just watch one picture after the next, after the next, after the next, go up on that wall. Every one of these people have a wonderful story of how Jesus rescued them from sin and gave them new life. And I'm sure that most of them probably have a story or could point to a person who reached out to them, who showed them love and brought them to Jesus. And so here's my challenge today, Westridge Church, with 22 years of wonderful memories, wonderful ministry, you know, under our belt. Let us never grow inward. Let us never lose our heart for that one person that's still out there that needs Jesus. Let us not forget that, that we started this church, there's, there's 10,000, excuse me, within a 10-mile radius, there's over 357,000 people who, who, who live around us. And we're praying that every single person will have a chance to hear the gospel, that will have a chance to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Let us, let us remember that every single life matters to God, that every, everyone, everyone deserves to be be brought into the presence of Jesus to hear how much God loves them, how much, how Jesus died for them, how he rose from the dead and how he has a wonderful plan and purpose for their, for their life. And so as we move into year 23, who is that one person in your life right now that needs Jesus, that needs to be brought into his presence, that needs to hear how much God loves them alone and how much God loves them so much that he gave his only son for them? Who needs God's forgiveness? Who who needs new life that can only be found in Jesus? Who is your one? And what's your plan to reach them with the message of the gospel? Acts chapter 8, the writer of Acts, Luke, he introduces us to another deacon. We've heard about Stephen. We know that there's seven altogether. Stephen is, 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 is killed for his faith. But this man's name is Philip. And because of the persecution towards the early Christians, Philip has been driven out of Jerusalem like so many others, and he's been driven into the area of Samaria. And it is while he's there that God sets up a divine appointment with one unique man who was desperately searching for hope and meaning in his life. And God uses this story to show us the great lengths that he will go to to reach that one person with the gospel and how he can keep our hearts outward focused to be part of his plan to reach the one. How do we do that? How can we reach the one? How do we, moving forward, continue to reach that one person? We must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
Acts chapter 8 tells us that the persecution had pushed believers out of Jerusalem. We get into verse 25 and it says, Now when they had testified and they had spoken the word of the Lord, all these persecuted apostles and believers and deacons, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And verse 27 says, And he rose and he went. Now, if you've walked intimately with God for any period of time, then you know that there are just moments when the Holy Spirit of God is prompting you. He, he is nudging your conscience. He has put a person in front of you that may be hopeless, that maybe is just hurting, that is just, just needs need something, and he's leading you. He's leading you to reach out to them. Maybe there's a person in your neighborhood that's lost without Jesus, and they've, they've come to you to talk, and the Spirit of God is just saying to you, share your faith with them. That's the hope that they're looking for. Maybe, maybe you, you, he's saying, invite him to come with you on Sunday morning to church. You've got an empty seat next to you. Invite him to fill it. And that's what, what Philip is experiencing here in this moment. His heart is sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It is so important for us to be sensitive to that Holy Spirit when he is wanting to speak into our lives. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to lead people to Jesus, to lead us as well into situations where God can use us. Back probably around 1999, I was um, at a, a, a lunch meeting out on Barrett Parkway, and I was driving back towards Dallas, towards Paulding County on 120. And all of a sudden, I was actually praying. I was praying about the meeting I had just come out of. I was praying about the future. The meeting was causing me to pray about the future. And all of a sudden, I just felt this need. I mean, there was just a strong urging to turn left. And the Walmart wasn't there at the time, but to turn left into this neighborhood. I knew we had some of our, our, our people in there. And again, this is 99. This is, church wasn't even two years old. I drove in there, and I'm like, Lord, I don't even know why I'm in here. And I just kept feeling it. Just keep driving. Just keep driving. And all of a sudden, I came upon this house. There were police cars parked out in front in the driveway next to it. And I just got out of my car, and I walked up, and two, it was one of our families. It was their house. And it was at that moment, I mean, I, it was, I walked into a situation, and God just directed me, and I had to just involve myself in a in a situation that, that really was a little bit dicey. But it was so clear that I was supposed to be there. It was so clear that God was using me while I was there to help the, the sheriffs, to help this family. And God used that situation to see people in that family come to Christ. It was unbelievable how, how, how that whole thing played out. And even to this day, how that one moment plays out. I just knew I was supposed to be there. It was crazy. Listen, when we're walking closely with Jesus and we are in tune with him, we're abiding him, in him, the Holy Spirit will lead us into situations where God is at work, where he wants to use us. He will put us in holy moments that just can't be explained outside of his leading. And he will empower us beyond our own ability to do his work. And that's where we see miracles take place. That's when we meet up with divine appointments. That's where the fun, the fun God stuff takes place. And as Philip here is, is being led out of Samaria onto, that onto a road that led from Jerusalem into Gaza, he encounters a very unique man. Verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a, high, a, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this Ethiopian man, listen, he was no ordinary guy. He was a, he was a court official of the, of the queen of Ethiopia. You could say that he was in her government cabinet. He was probably like the secretary of the treasury and the chairman of the Federal Reserve all rolled up into one person. 
And Luke tells us that he, he was a eunuch. That doesn't mean he was emasculated. It means that he was a powerful man. He might have been a high military officer. He was a high official in the queen's cabinet. And the fact that he's riding in a chariot says that he was a man of status and prestige. I mean, to ride in a chariot back in this day was like driving a Lexus or a Mercedes. I mean, it was, he, was a, he was a man that had some influence, some power. He was probably well-educated. Now, notice why he comes to Israel. Verse 27 tells us that he came to Jerusalem to worship. He was most likely a man of Jewish descent that had come back to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. He was on a spiritual pilgrimage. He was, he was there in Jerusalem when Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2. And apparently this man had a spiritual connection to the God of the Israelites. And so he comes back like many of the other Israelites came back who were speaking different tongues, different languages, the whole Acts 2 uh, movement of the Holy Spirit. He, God brings him back to Jerusalem to worship him. Now think about this for a moment. The fact that this man from Ethiopia traveled all the way to Jerusalem would have meant that he would have traveled over 1,200 miles in his chariot. Traveled along the Nile River, then across the desert sands of, of Sinai. He would have come through the hill country of Judea. And before he went over the Mount of Olives, he would have then, excuse me, after he went over the Mount of Olives, he would have then just seen the beautiful city of Jerusalem. But in his possession was a copy of the Old Testament writings of Isaiah. We don't know if a Jewish rabbi gave it to him. We don't know, that, you know if, he, if he had it in his possessions growing up in his house. But what we do know is that it, he didn't understand what he was reading. But he wanted to. He came to Jerusalem as a man seeking knowledge, a man who was seeking understanding. This was a man looking for spiritual answers to spiritual questions. But he did not find those answers in Jerusalem. He did not find those answers talking to rabbis, talking to Jewish priests, to, to, to the, any of the, the Sadducees, the, the, none of them, and none of the teachers. I mean, here's a guy who has everything that you could want in life. He's got respect, he's got money, he's got a prestigious job, and, and, and he's got a title, but he is spiritually lost without Jesus. He's seeking after God, but he's just empty. And so this Ethiopian man is riding in his chariot, traveling out of Jerusalem back to Ethiopia, trying to make sense of the writings of Isaiah. And he's a man with an empty heart, but one who is receptive to the truth. And look at what happens in verse 29. The Spirit, the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now the Holy Spirit's still talking to Philip, but more importantly, Philip is still listening. And the Spirit says, see that guy in the chariot? Track him down. Leave where you are, track him down. Now think about Philip for just a moment. Here's a guy who's a deacon in the, in the first church in Jerusalem. He's got a big job. He's been pushed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. He's been moved to Samaria. And when you get to Samaria, if you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it tells us that he's preaching to huge crowds. He's performing miraculous signs. He is casting out demons. He is healing people who are paralyzed. And the Bible says that his ministry was so awesome that it brought the city great joy. I mean, Philip is in the middle of a full-blown revival. And listen, if you're a preacher, you don't leave that kind of scenario. I mean, you're like, I'm staying here until this is over. Every night I show up to preach, people are coming to Christ, people are being healed. This is what every, this is what every pastor wants to be part of, that he wants to live for. But God says, I want you to leave. Get out of here. 
Leave the revival, leave the huge crowds, leave the amazing ministry of signs and wonders, leave the miracles and the healings, leave, you know, leave the fact that you've got your face on a big billboard going down whatever street it is, and, and chase down this chariot that is traveling down this desolate, dusty desert road heading back to Gaza. Now, going to Gaza for a Jewish person was like being on the road that led to the ends of the earth. But God was more interested in this one man than Philip's ministry in Samaria. Now, Philip could have been just like Jonah and said, God, I'm not doing that. You, you, you need to send someone else. I've got something going on here. I've got, I've got a ministry going on here. I'm making a name for myself here. But God says, no, 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 you go. And Philip did that. Verse 30, I love this. So Philip ran to him. See, reaching the one doesn't, doesn't just require being led by the Holy Spirit, but it, re- it requires obedience. We must be obedient to Jesus' call to be his witnesses. And if you look back again, just to remind ourselves of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, but you, 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 you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he's come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, listen, don't get comfortable in Jerusalem because I want this message to get out to Judea and Samaria and just... When you think you're comfortable there, I'm going to send you out because I want it to go to the ends of the earth. This, and this Ethiopian man was apparently a big part of that plan. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian man said, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, listen, if you're a person with the gift of evangelism, you are drooling at a moment like this. Okay, I mean, this is amazing. Can you imagine how excited Philip must have been to, 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 to seize this opportunity to, to point this man to Jesus? Now, this next part is such a God thing, really. I mean, check out the verses that the man has been reading in the book of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53, verse 7. Look at this. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before, its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, uh, humiliation justice was denied. In, humi- in his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, who's, who's Isaiah writing about here? These verses are an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. Listen, there is no way that the Jewish leaders that this, re- that this Ethiopian man would have talked about, there's no way that they, they would have connected the dots back to Jesus. They just, they just crucified him. The, the, anything these men would have had to have said about Jesus would have either been negative or completely false. But look at the question that the Ethiopian man asked Philip in verse 34. And he says, and the eunuch said to, to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Now, in basketball terms, you call this a layup. Okay, if this, if it, in golf terms, this is called a gimme. If this, this is like a chip shot field goal in football. Th- this can be, for, in baseball, it's a can of corn. It's a routine fly ball right here, okay? This would be some, this is like someone walking up to you with their Bible up and, and showing you John 3.16 and going, can you explain this to me? I don't know what this is talking about. And remember this, Philip doesn't have the New Testament to share with this man because it hasn't been written yet. But he did know that Isaiah was writing about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is working, talking, and he's setting up the whole scenario. You have this man who's being drawn to Jesus. You have this obedient deacon who, is, who has a heart to tell people about Jesus. And you have the power of the word of God, and that's all you need. 
And this is where the Holy Spirit goes to work. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. When you are, listen, if you're going to reach the one, if you're going to see someone come to Christ, we must point people to Jesus in the gospel. We have to go there. Verse 36, it says, and they were growing along the road, and they came to some, some water. And they, the, the eunuch said, see, I mean, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? This Ethiopian man tells Philip, he says, let's get out of the chariot. I want to get in the water. In other words, I want to make a commitment to Jesus. And here's Philip's response. And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And check out his response. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, some of you in here may be thinking, that's it? That's all he did? And there's got to be more to this. I mean, he's got to commit his hands, his feet, his eyes, his heart. He's got, he's got to put it all in. He's got to, I mean, no, 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 no. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, in Romans 10, 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess that, you're faith, that, you're, that you have faith and you're saved. Romans 10, 11 says, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. When you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is a son of God, the Bible says you're saved. Now, I love what happens next. Look at verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he, was ba and he baptized him. And as soon as he was saved, Philip, I mean, he took him down and he immersed him. I know some of you, you, you look at what happens up there in that tub, you go, that's really weird. Y'all are in water together? Grown people in water. Putting another person back, bringing them up. What's going on up there? Right here. He immerses him, he baptizes him, baptizes him. Baptism was this man's public declaration of his faith. He said, I recognize that Jesus died for my sins. He went down into the grave, and then three days later, he came up out of the grave. He was resurrected. He declared victory over the grave and over death. And now, by being baptized, he says, I want to follow Jesus. My old life has died. My sin has been paid for on the cross. I was buried with Jesus, and now I've been raised with Jesus. I'm alive with Jesus. The old person is gone. Because of Jesus, I'm a new person. Now, why would God be so interested in this one man? Why, why an Ethiopian man? I mean, what's going on here in this story? Why, why would he be so interested in this one man that he would pull Philip out of a very powerful ministry situation in Samaria to go after this one guy on this lonely, desolate, dusty road? In the Greek, the word Ethiopian literally means burnt face. You say, why is that so important? Well, the events of this story show us that there was a kingdom of dark-skinned people at the time of the very uh, of first century Christianity. Scholars record a beginning point and a continuation of Christianity in Africa after the events of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You see, so often we, we don't see, we don't even talk about the significance of black people in the Bible. But this story is significant. Author Tony Evans tells us that, that the Ethiopian eunuch was most likely responsible for the establishment and the expansion of the Coptic Christian church in Africa. We're talking about Egypt, we're talking about Ethiopia, we're talking beyond. God knew that this highly organized administrative man would have the ability to use his influence and his position to spread the gospel all throughout Africa. But Philip's whole encounter with the Ethiopian man was a fulfillment of prophecy. 
Prophecy written thousands of years ago. Prophecy in the book of Zephaniah, which most people can't even find in their Old Testament. But in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, here's what it says. It says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. The salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch not only shows us the importance of black people in the Bible, but it shows us the fulfillment of prophecy that Africans of Jewish descent would receive salvation in Jesus and become worshipers of God once again. And it also shows us what God is willing to do to see people come to Christ. God knew. God knew that it would probably be impossible for an olive-skinned Jewish man or Jewish woman to go into Africa to share the gospel. So he sent a black-skinned man to Jerusalem with Jewish descent to receive salvation on a dusty road so that he would take it back home and spread it all over Africa. As many of you know, um, 32 miles from our front steps here at Westridge, in the city of Clarkston, we have the most diverse square mile in our whole country. I believe that God has brought the world to Clarkston. There are so many different dialects. There's so many different skin colors, people. I mean, these are refugees who have all come here legally. God's brought the world to Clarkston. You walk around, you walk around Clarkston, you see Syrians, you see Iranians, you see Iraqis, you see Kuwait, people from Kuwait, people from Lebanon, you see, you see Somalians. They're, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Coming from places where it's nearly impossible for people like me to go back to share the gospel. You say, why would God bring them here? Why would God do that? Same reason he took the Ethiopian man to Jerusalem. He wants his message of love, his message of forgiveness and salvation to reach these people so that he can send them back, hopefully one day, or send their kids back one day to share that good news with everybody they come in contact with. We're working in Detroit right now with a Bangladesh man who has now planted eight house churches in Detroit amongst Muslim people. His goal is to raise them up. <laughs> Bangladesh is one of the most persecuted countries in the world. His goal is to raise them up, send them back home to share the gospel. We're working with a ministry right now called Envision Atlanta. It's the same guy that we connected with to get into to Burkina Faso. He now lives in Clarkston. We're working with him right now. His dream is to raise up 100 missionaries to see thousands and thousands of people come to Christ. We just took our whole pastor director staff over there. But his dream is to raise up 100 plus missionaries to send them back to their countries so that the gospel can be spread. Listen, Jesus said, Jerusalem, all day long. Judea, Samaria, let's get the gospel out. But it's gotta go to every person, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every skin color. That's what this story's about. And so often, my white brothers and sisters, we forget that Jewish people, olive-skinned people, were the ones that were God was using. And there was such a predominant black presence in the Bible. God was, God was working every skin color, every tribe, every nation, sending them all over the world. And listen, we're going to engage in the story. We've already sent camel's milk to, to, over to Clarkston. We've seen Somalian people come to Christ. But because of who you are as a church, because you love so well, because when the offering buckets are passed, you give, and because 
you just pour your whole heart and soul into what we're doing here and you believe in being an outward focused church, I want you to see what we were able to do this past week. So uh, we moved here in June uh, 15, 2017, which means we've been here about two years and three months. This is the most diverse square mile in the entire world. Over 180 to 200 different people groups. 90 of them are unreached. A lot of those are unengaged. And there's about 18,000 refugees living in 38 apartment complexes in this square mile. And the stories you hear uh, about what they've been through, uh, losing their entire families, watching their children die, they come from hard and hardened religions. And there are whole people groups that are represented here where there has not been one believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the entire people group for all of history so uh, one of the great places Westridge has already stepped in is by helping us start our, our camel's milk. And the camel's milk uh, got us into the neighborhood where, uh, that was named literally the worst living conditions in America. And um, Westridge came out and fed everybody, including the refugees that were helping us. And um, while they were there eating the food that was prepared by our partner, Westridge, two of them accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, I'm standing here with my friend Pete Brockup, and uh, Westridge, you're familiar with Pete. We have uh, been involved with him in Africa, in Burkina Faso. It was really this relationship with Pete that opened up such big doors with, uh, with, with Burkina Faso. And here we are today in Clarkston. And that I, I believe this, and our church has heard me talk about this over and over, that every single person deserves to have the opportunity to meet Jesus just like you and I have and to make that decision. And so um, last week you were hanging out with my brother Kevin, who yeah. is our uh, community outreach pastor, yeah. and you shared with him uh, that there's a lot of needs that are here uh, in your ministry with Envision Atlanta. But one of, the, one of the greatest needs that you talked about was just transportation and how you are taking, you know, refugees back and forth, you know, to, to to, to, to school, picking up people from the airport. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here yeah. uh, where you're transporting people just yes. to get their basic needs met. Yeah. And um, you know that a big value of our church, Pete, is generosity. Yeah. And um, we I've just... experienced that. I know, just through the camel's milk and just the other things. But we just want to put God on display. We want to show the world what, what, what faith in Christ can do and that when we live with a kingdom agenda that... that God puts things in our hands, and, and if we'll put them back in His hands, He just does more for us than we could ever imagine. And so, Pete, I want to uh, I want to give you the keys to this minivan behind us. Oh, this is the one. This is the one I wanted. Can you believe this? Are you serious? Are you are you kidding? What? Wow, wow. Thank you, Westridge. Thank you for being generous. I, I, I was almost ready to give up. We were looking at what part of our ministry we could mortgage to get it. But God already had it planned out.
God cares about that one. He cares about those Somalians. He cares about those Iraqis. He cares about those Syrian refugee mamas who are holding those babies. Westridge, I want to just challenge you. I'm going to be bold. Would you turn off your Fox News? Would you turn off your CNN? Would you put down all the, blues, the, the political stuff? And would you just say, my heart's going to be about the kingdom of God. It's going to be about every, ti- every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I'm going, this one and only life that God's let me just have. And it's all, every breath is a, is, is a gift of grace. I'm going to use it for God's glory to reach as many people as I can with, with the word of the, with the gospel. Listen. This is how much God cares about you individually. Jesus is talking in Matthew 18. They're asking him a question. He says, listen, he said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains to go search for the one? And he says, truly, he rejoices over it more than over 99 that never went astray. And he says, so it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of those, one of those little kids up there should perish without the gospel that one of these little kids that were up here a moment ago should perish without the gospel, that any of you should perish without the gospel. It doesn't matter what country we live in. It doesn't matter where people are from. It doesn't even matter at this moment what, what they've been born into. What matters is, will they have a chance to hear about Jesus? And how can they hear about Jesus if we don't tell them? How can they know if we don't go? How will they know? We have a gift that we don't even deserve. We can't hold it in and hide it. We got to turn ourselves outward and spread it and use this life that God has has given us as a gift. Every breath's a gift. The plan and purpose for your life is not to promote you. It's to promote Jesus. It's to promote Jesus. So, maybe you're the one. Maybe you're that one person. God's brought you here today. That's how much he cares about you. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you just drove in. You're like, I don't even know why I'm driving down this parkway. And you're here. It's because God wanted you to know how much he loves you, how much he cares about you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you, to pay for your sins so that you could receive forgiveness and new life that is found only in Jesus. Would you bow your head, all of you, at this moment? If you're here today and you are the one, who knows what God could do with your one and only life? when you place your faith and trust in him alone, like this Ethiopian man. Would you just pray with me if that's who you are? Father, right now, I put my faith and my trust in you alone. I receive salvation. I receive forgiveness. I ask Jesus to be my savior. What Jesus did for me on the cross was enough. I can't earn it. I'm not born into it. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the son of God and I profess it with my lips. Thank you for salvation.